When you love farming, you want to talk about it all the time. Real people, real farms, grassroots. This is the Ontario AgCast. Welcome to the Ontario AgCast. The Ontario AgCast is proud to be part of the Farm and Rural Ag Network. For all the best agricultural podcasts and agriculture video blogs, be sure to check out farmruralag.com. I'm your host, Wendell Shum, and my guest today is Amy Vanderheide. Amy, along with her family, operates Coldbrook Farms Limited in the Annapolis Valley in beautiful Nova Scotia. Amy, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Beautiful Nova Scotia. It's like I'm doing a tourist advertisement, <laughs> but it is beautiful. It is beautiful. Even I think it's beautiful, and I live here. Well, that's good. I think generally people like have a a fondness for their own part of the world. I, I hope that's true. I think you can take it for granted at some point, but here it's like, you know, the saying, like you drive five kilometers down the road and you're in a whole different place. And that's pretty much true here. I've been there. I can attest to that. And so for me to get to Nova Scotia, I have to drive all the way through Ontario, all the way through Quebec, all the way through New Brunswick, and then I'm in Nova Scotia. Yep. You got it. (laughs) (laughs) Just a short drive. Well, uh, yeah, a <laughs> short day and a half drive. Yeah. Uh, now, Nova Scotia is the eastern edge of Canada. It's a bigger province than I thought till I sort of drove around it. It really is varied. So the Annapolis Valley, that's where most of the livestock would be? Yeah, the Annapolis Valley is kind of like one of the agricultural hubs, I'll say. That and kind of Truro Way uh, is where two most, agriculture prominent places would be i would say the annapolis valley is definitely higher up in i would say the horticulture crops because of we have such rich soils here and lots it's a livestock as well oh yeah yeah lots of dairy farms and a few beef farms still kicking around and of course poultry yeah and poultry that's your business it is well tell us a little about your farm we have a broiler farm so we have three barns right now in the process of building up four and then we grow crops to kind of just, you know, work around with the with the poultry. So we have soybeans and wheat crops. Right. And broilers, they would go and become chicken nuggets or they would become KFC or Swiss chalet, that kind of stuff. Yeah. So we are go for fresh market. They go to Eden Valley Farms, which is located in Berwick, which is 20 minutes from here. And uh, so they go fresh, but they are distributed to KFC, Mary Brown's, Costco, Swiss Chalet, all those places. And you have a few beef cows as well. We do. Yeah. My husband and I own a little farm on our own. That's just a cow calf. We only have about 13 head, but our farm before becoming a poultry farm was actually a dairy farm. And when my father-in-law and his brother parted ways, that was the end of the dairy. And then the poultry came in. So there was still some pasture land kicking around and a barn set up with head gates and such. So in order to utilize that land, we just got a few cows. And I grew up on a beef farm, so it just kind of happened naturally like that. So at this point, you are a broiler farmer (laughs) and have a beef farm as a hobby. Yeah, well, I always say that every farmer needs a hobby, so ours is just more farming. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Have I got it right? You farm with your in-laws. We do, yeah. Okay, well, let's talk about that. You said you grew up on a beef farm. I did. Was that out uh, in Nova Scotia as well? Yeah, it's only five minutes away from where my house is right now. <laughs> 
Oh, you haven't traveled too far from home. No, no, I didn't go far. And did you, like growing up on the farm, like were you super involved in in all the kind of kid farming stuff, 4-H and, you know, showing cattle, all that kind of stuff? I wasn't. And I don't know why I wasn't, because my mom and her sisters all were, and mom still is involved with uh, judging and stuff like that, but I was never, I was in sports, I guess, so I guess I did that, and I just didn't get into the 4-H thing until now. So now my son's in 4-H, and I'm in 4-H now, too, so (laughs) So I get to do it, I get to live the experience through him. If I would have asked 15-year-old Amy, what do you want to do when you grow up, would Farmer have been on your list? Yes. Yeah, I always wanted to get married to a farmer or be a farmer and and have kids. So that's what I did. (laughs) Well, (laughs) check that one off, I guess. (laughs) Okay, and so how did you meet your husband? Like, how did you end up farming with your in-laws, I guess? So all through high school, I worked at a local zoo in Aylesford, Nova Scotia called Oaklawn Farm Zoo. And uh, it's a privately owned zoo. But they have like exotic. petting zoo, or are we talking about no, like giraffes and tigers and things like that? No giraffe, but there there is tigers, lions, monkeys, gibbons, and well, then they I'm. also yeah, and they also have the farm animals. They have some like Watuka cows they had, and some different species. But then some more native species to Canada, like you know porcupines and skunks and raccoons and horses and stuff like that. They pretty much have a little bit of everything that doesn't require a large land mass. Okay. You said you worked on the zoo, like worked on a concession stand or like worked with the animals? You did it all. When you worked there, you did it all. So we'd go do tours in the morning and clean up and the zoo itself opened to the public around 10 a.m. So we'd have tours all done, get cleaned up. And then it was either to continue on just maintaining grounds for the day, or we were delegated to work in the canteen or the admissions gate. So everybody did a little bit of everything. What was your favorite animal at the zoo? My favorite animal at the zoo? Yeah, you had to see this one coming. Yeah, I guess I should have. <laughs> um, trying to think now. I It's going to sound cheesy, but I really did like the potbelly pigs, which seems so <laughs> crazy to work at a zoo and really like the potbelly pigs, but I did. But it's also like working, being able to work with, you know, lions and tigers and black jaguars and and stuff like that. I mean, it's not that they weren't my favorite, but, you know, that's something that uh, is pretty unique to be able to say that you did that. So I kind of am very proud of of being able to do that. And the owners are very hands on and they they love to teach. And, you know, I learned lessons working with those types of animals that... uh, definitely probably carry through today so okay here's a question because i've read that we have domesticated animals and then we have wild animals in a zoo Mm -hmm. are they just a different kind of domestic animal or is that not even the same thing at all well the lions at the zoo (laughs) were all raised in the house so i guess they are pretty domesticated and gail who owns the zoo with her husband ron she feeds them every night and still goes in with them every day to feed them with the public there. So wow. when you can trust that uh, <laughs> that type of animal with basically your life, I would say that uh, they're pretty domesticated right now. But, you know, they still have instincts. There are definitely some that you wouldn't want to go in with or a certain person may not want to go in with because they just know if you're scared of them. Yeah, but you didn't have to do that. No, I didn't have to do that. I was able to go in, like, 
they had a, a young cougar and we could go in with him until he got to the age where he was starting to show dominance type thing. But yeah, it, we still worked pretty closely with most of the animals. So it was it was a very hands-on job. So I mean, I think a lot of teenagers would love that kind of an experience to yeah. get in sort of behind the scenes and up close with, with those kind of animals. Yeah, and it was it taught me a lot in, um, you know, I, I had grown up on a farm, so I knew the work that went into it. But even as a teenager working 12, 14-hour days in the summer, you know, sometimes seven days a week, that definitely instilled that work ethic to say, okay, you know, I love this job. And, uh, you know, as a teenager, I probably wouldn't have done it if I didn't love it. So it was it was hard work, and I, I loved it. And I definitely cherish that area of my life that I got to be able to do that. Okay. And I can with lions and tigers and things like that. I guess from there, you, you've got a couple options, either run away and join the circus or uh, <laughs> find a local or farmer. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah. Thanks for picking that up for me. I actually honestly wasn't sure where I was going. <laughs> yeah. So actually, how we got, we kind of segued, but, uh, but two people that I worked with there, they were a few years older than me. Obviously, I was a teenager. They were, you know, married themselves. So but they, they kept saying, oh, we know this guy. Like, we really need to introduce you to him. He's a farmer, and, and you'd be great together. And anyway, so they introduced me to him and uh, at a party one night. And a few weeks later, we went on our first date, and then the rest is history. So I was 17 then, so I've been with him for, for quite a while now. Must be working. Holy. Oh, something's, something's going all right so far. <laughs> What did I said to my wife, Jennifer, at some point this week, I said, you know, this year we're married 25 years. And she looked right at me and said, yeah, she goes, I decided a long time ago, it's easier to put up with your bullshit than it is to get divorced. Well, yeah, that's pretty much our motto, too. At this point, it's just easier. (laughs) Uh, Well, okay. Now, farming with your in-laws can't always be easy. What's that like working so closely with them? Uh, It's it's has its moments i guess (laughs) uh no they're they're great to work with they they very much you know we all just work together there's no real manager yes or no guy you know my father-in-law is still the owner still the head honcho i guess but uh but james is able to step up and say okay well we need to do this we need to do this and and it's it's pretty good that way we kind of just do it and we're never really get in trouble for it so um but now, you know, we're kind of reaching the the succession stage, and that's a that's a tough conversation. So, it's For sure. uh, we're just kind of hanging in there and waiting to see what the future brings. But this is our our plan is to keep going with it. We we don't want to do anything else, and and they don't want to see us do anything else either. So, right, and I think that is the, you know. One of the main goals for farm families is how do we take this farm and how do we make it possible for the next generation? Yeah, and yeah, and we're just we're at the point like my father-in-law is seventy, and as much as he uh, he doesn't want to step back, but I think he he just can't let go. So mm-hmm. we're just kind of waiting on that right now. But the conversation has been had, and it's difficult, and it's hard, and it's it's stressful for everyone, but. We'll, uh, we'll stick it out and see what the future brings. Well, and I think part of that discussion has to be, you know, acknowledging what the, the previous generations have accomplished. And that was a note that Christine had given me that you've, you've said that some of your biggest inspirations come from family, both mm-hmm. the women that came before you and from your husband. Can you talk a little about that? 
Yeah, so my, uh, the bee farm I grew up on was actually my grandmother's. We lived next door. My parents were removed from the farm. They, they worked, you know, different jobs, and we didn't live on the farm per se, but I could walk to Rose every day we got off the bus to her place. So. But my grandfather died when I was two months old. And so my grandmother was very young still. There was quite an age difference between them. I don't remember exactly what it was, but uh, she still, my aunts were still in high school and college. So okay. they were, it was my grandmother and my two youngest aunts who were running the beef farm. And we probably, there was probably around 30 head of cattle, but they did all the, all the haying and fencing and all that mm-hmm. themselves. So I, because I was a kid and we, we lived next door, I just kind of tagged around with them and kind of learned to work from them. And my grandmother, you know, made five pies a day and still bakes every day. And she's well into her 80s. And, <laughs> wow. <laughs> and That's a lot of on, pie. <laughs> yeah, and still lives on her own in, in the house that my mom was raised in. So, you know, I, uh, my, my mom has three sisters and an older brother. The, the sisters, the, my aunts, have always been big inspirations to me. They've always just, you know, just paved their own way and gone after what they wanted. And I think because maybe they lost their father when they were young and and it was, you know, they just went and did what they had to do. And it was never questioned and it was never, should we sell the farm? Can we do it without them type thing? Yeah. They just did it. And I think that I carry a lot of that attitude with me. Right. And and that would have been, that's a non-traditional farm you know, mm-hmm. by a lot of standards, yeah, especially oh, for sure. this would have been a few years ago. And was that, like, were they sort of recognized in the local community as, you know, sort of those women farmers? I don't really know, to be honest. It's not something that I ever really hear about. You hear about, like, they were always the best girls, their last name's Best. And so, okay. um, and they had a little band at some point, they were called the Best Girls. So they were really known <laughs> for the band. Like, really, like music is really important to my family. So, so the Great. band kind of, that's what they were known for. But they also, I'm sure my grandmother especially is always respected. And whenever you, you say, oh, I'm, I'm her granddaughter, they know exactly who I'm talking about. So it's, okay. uh, you know, it may not be as out there as it is today because, you know, there was no social media or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but I think within the community, they definitely, definitely are respected for doing what they did and, and continued on. Yeah. So you can say that your best days are behind you. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. All right. Okay. So that's the, the women that came before. What about your husband? So my James, husband, right? Yeah, James. So he inspires me because, well, why, like I've never seen anybody work like he does. Like I know all farmers work hard, but when when you're there side by side and you like I feel like I'm giving it my all and then see him giving it his all, I uh I sometimes don't know how he does it. And uh even more so now since he was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis 3 years ago and okay. uh it, it really hasn't slowed him down that much. And even though I keep saying, okay, I think it's time for you to rest now. And he just keeps doing what he's doing and may not be the best thing for him to do, but, uh, but it's an inspiration that he doesn't let it, let that get to him and doesn't let it him change his course of action. Okay. So I don't know really much about MS. Mm-hmm. What, what does that diagnosis mean? So MS is very much what you hear of as a silent illness 
so he um his started out first of all his sister his younger sister has it and she was diagnosed about seven years ago i would say and his grandmother had it now i didn't know his grandmother she passed away long before i came into the picture so one day he was sitting at the table and he said i feel like there's a cell phone like vibrating in my stomach and around my back and so we were kind of like oh you must have a pinched nerve and he went to the doctor and they couldn't find anything wrong in that area or with any muscles. But he said, you know, you do have this family history. So I think we better take an MRI and see what's going on in your brain. And then so they they found some lesions on his brain, which is every time a, you have a flare up, it leaves a lesion on your brain, which doesn't heal. So that was just what was happening. He was having a flare up and that was causing that uh, vibration feeling. And after the MRI, we knew that it was MS and, and could go on from there and meet with a neurologist and and kind of learn what that meant for him. So it affects men a little differently than it affects women. It's, you know, each case is different, obviously, but statistically, men aren't hit as hard as women. So even though his sister is younger, she definitely has had some, some more severe flare-ups than he okay. has. So. And, and what are the kind of things that that he has to deal with them. So fatigue is huge. And in the summer, he seems like, I don't know if it's adrenaline or what it is, but it doesn't seem to affect him. But when we start to slow down, I really notice that he's quite tired. And he sometimes will kind of stumble a little bit, especially if he's tired and that's, that's fairly normal. And he has some numbness and tingling in his legs. So it's pretty, it's minor really for him right now. Uh, He hasn't had any huge mobility issues. He hasn't lost any vision or anything like that, but it's certainly something that, uh, you know, that's possible in the future. So we're always, always meeting with the neurologist and always getting his MRIs done routinely to make sure that we're on top of it. And there's, always new research coming to to help with some new medications so so we're hopeful for the future but but right now it's just um you know it's just normal with that diagnosis how Mm -hmm. does that impact sort of your outlook you and james your outlook towards farming today farming 20 years from now right so one of the first things that we talked about with the neurologist was how is this going to affect my lifestyle because Mm -hmm. we are farmers and it is our lifestyle Mm -hmm. and we don't really know if we could do anything else. Right. It's very Um, physical. Right. So fortunately our neurologist grew up on a farm in New Brunswick. So he said, don't stop. And he, he said like the best thing for you to do is to keep moving, keep doing what you're doing because that's what your body's used to. And if you, you know, if you stop, you, you stop. So he definitely said, you know, rest when you need to rest and take downtime when you can and, and stuff like that. But uh, but yeah, other than that, he said, you know, it's all these new medications that come out. They just slow down the progress all the time. So he he's very confident that James will make it, you know, all the way through our, our farming career until, you know, you don't know what happens with all the research they find by then. But uh it shouldn't be an issue. So we're hanging on to that hope as we go into the future with it. So it's stuff like that makes me stop and just acknowledge what a what an amazing time it is to be alive. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the kind of advancements they've made 
and the kind of breakthroughs that are happening all the time. There's hope for some of these things where, you know, certainly 50 years ago, 20 years ago, like that just wasn't the case. So Well, it's pretty incredible. Like even when his sister was diagnosed, I'm going to say it was seven years ago, there was about three approved medications. And then when James was diagnosed three years later, there was seven. And now I think there's 11 or 12 and maybe another more coming, another few coming down. So even in that short amount of time to just even have that, that growth with the medications that we're able to use and, and to pinpoint which one may work well for him that doesn't work well for someone else to have those options is huge. Now I understand why you would say that he is an inspiration because I think that is an incredible story and I wish all the best for you and James going ahead. You certainly don't appear to have slowed down as a result of that. (laughs) Definitely uh, actively involved in your local community and with lots of farm organizations. Let me just do the list here. Kings (laughs) County, I assume that's your home county. Yep. Uh, 4-H leader and proud Mm 4-H mom. Annapolis Valley Chamber of Commerce Agriculture Committee. So stepping outside into the broader business community. Mm -hmm. Kings County Federation of Agriculture Director. Agriculture More Than Ever Atlantic Ambassador. And co-creator of the Maritime Ag Women's Network. Have I got them all? I think so. I was listing <laughs> stuff off, and I'm like, if this isn't it, then I'm just crazy. <laughs> uh, well, you might be crazy anyway. <laughs> I might be. <laughs> um, yeah, that's that's quite a list. I guess the one that sticks out to me on there is the Chamber of Commerce one, because you would be interacting with a lot of people that aren't in agriculture. Yeah, so I have been on it for I think this might be my third year so other members on the committee there are two other farmers now but everyone else is a banker or a lender Mm -hmm. or a lawyer or outside like they support agriculture and they work within agriculture but they aren't the farmer themselves so it's kind of neat though because I've learned learned lots about what those roles entail and just talking to those people and how they work with farms and are able to give back to the farming community, I guess, through the agriculture committee. It's, it's kind of cool. So I've learned a lot from that. Have you had the chance to see different farming operations across Canada? Not so much across Canada, other than online, but uh, <laughs> but even even just here, there's there's tons of different practices around here. So I've been lucky to see those. And you have been honored as the 2018 Outstanding Woman in Atlantic Agriculture, the Atlantic Farm Women's Conference. They always put Atlantic in every title here. <laughs> which, uh, We're proud to I be from Atlantic is, Canada. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> tell us about that experience, being the Outstanding Woman in Atlantic Agriculture. Well, I can tell you that I wasn't expecting it, that's for sure. <laughs> I got it in November at the Atlantic Farm Women's Conference it was in Moncton, New Brunswick, and the award is only two years old. So last year, or 18 months, of course, or the conference runs on an 18-month schedule. Okay. So 18 months ago, it was given to a a woman who is like, you know, the grandmother of all of us. She was a, <laughs> a beef farmer and 4-H leader extraordinaire and has earned that title really so I was sitting around the room like 
we were eating lunch because we were running behind schedule. So they were like, okay, we'll announce this during lunch. And so we're eating and she starts reading off this person. And I'm looking around the room to see who it was expecting it to be, you know, someone who's been established in the agriculture industry (laughs) a little longer than I have. And then I'm, I'm eating and I'm like, Oh my God, she's talking about me. So I'm trying to down my roast beef sandwich super quick. <laughs> because I knew I'd have to get up. Um, so yeah, I was not expecting it at all. And had I been, I may have sat there a little more politely than I was trying to be. So, so it was definitely a surprise. And, uh, and the whole idea from the Maritime Ag Women's Network came from attending that conference three years ago. So it was kind of a bittersweet moment that way. Do you think they could have given you a little heads up, maybe? Yeah, well, I think they just wanted to keep it a surprise. But, yeah, I didn't even know I was nominated, so, you know, (laughs) I couldn't have prepared if I tried. No, and who nominated you? The Agriculture Committee from the Chamber of Commerce. Very nice, very nice. And and I'm I'm not surprised by that, because I've been following you on social media, and I've been keeping up with some of the things you're doing. And and you, you do an excellent job of showcasing life on an Atlantic poultry farm. So there's that. And more recently, I guess, I've checked out your your blog, which is relatively new. It's very new. <laughs> How do you like doing a blog? Uh, I so far like it. I've always liked writing. I've always been creative that way. Uh, even in elementary school, I used to enter writing contests all the time. And that, you know, went with me all through school as well. And I still journal a lot. So whenever I you know, feel like I, I have something to write about. I've always, I've always just written it in my journal. And then when the Ag More Than Ever stuff happened and I was just kind of trying to figure out what my goals would be and how I could reach out further, I thought, well, maybe it's time to come out of the journal pages and put it out there. So it's kind of a work in progress and it's kind of just a, when something hits me and I feel like I need to write about it, then I just sit down at the computer and bam it out and then it's out there. So... We'll see where it goes in the future, but it's definitely nice to be able to sit down and put all of that into words and put it out there and get the feedback. It's it's kind of neat to do it that way. Yeah, certainly. I have checked it out, and I, I think it's great, and I hope you keep doing it and, and keep exploring that part of uh, letting people see what life is like on a farm. Yeah, and I hope to. It, it gives me a little bit more room than you know, Instagram or Twitter, where you're kind of limited with how much you can say, I can sit down here and and (laughs) put it all out there. (laughs) Yep. Certainly people will want to check out your, your Twitter and Instagram as well. And we'll put some, some links so they know where to find that. Yeah. Um, Okay. Now I have a shift the responsibility of podcasting onto you a little bit. You need to give me one super interesting fact and something people wouldn't know or expect about you at all. (laughs) So I I had to text my mom because I'm like I'm, <laughs> I'm pretty pretty much an open book about things, so I couldn't really think. So her exact words are, "You curse a lot, but it's okay because studies show how highly intelligent people swear more than others." I guess she's proud you, of me. You are a fiery redhead too, is that right? <laughs> that well, I get it from her. So my parents that, that and is ter- my brother terribly were, stereotypical of me. Yeah. No, I get it a lot. My parents and my brother are all redheads, so um, it comes pretty naturally. But, yeah, so I do tend to, I have to kind of think about what I say before I say it, and I've always been that way, but now I kind of just let little words slip every now and then. So. Well, slightly disappointed you made through the test that we did without cursing at me at all. So. Well, um, I have done that. <laughs> there you go. 
Oh, Evie, that's that's great. We missed each other. I was out in Nova Scotia this summer. Jennifer and I took a trip out there, and we had hoped to catch up, but did not make it. So next time yes. when we get out there, you we're have definitely going to come to the valley to, the next time yeah, for sure. Get to the Annapolis Valley. Yes. Cool. Thanks for taking some time and chatting and sharing a little bit about your life out on the East Coast. Yeah. Um, thanks for having me. It's been fun. Like all people that I know from Twitter. I hope that someday we get a chance to meet in real life. Yes, for sure. I hope so, too. Thanks again. No problem. This has been the Ontario AgCast. The Ontario AgCast is produced by Christine Schoonerwood and is proud to be part of the Farm and Rural Ag Network. For all the best agricultural podcasts and agriculture video blogs, be sure to check out farmruralag.com. If this is the last podcast we ever do, it's been fun. If not, we'll see you next time.